Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Michael Anderson sits in his pickup truck just up the street from the Martin family home, frozen in shock. Immediately after entering the Martin residence at 1207 Winthrop Drive, he saw the body of who he believed was his uncle Michael towards the rear of the main level. He was completely covered in blood. With no sign of his father Rick anywhere, and still unsure of what transpired in the home, Michael Anderson patiently waits for police to arrive, his eyes glued to the front door the entire time, looking for any sign of Brandon Martin. Sergeant Paul Gamache from the Corona Police Department is the first officer to arrive. He makes contact with Michael Anderson, who briefs him on what he saw inside of the home. Michael also warns him that his father Rick may also be inside somewhere, along with Michael and Melody Martin's son, Brandon. Sergeant Gamache waits for two other officers to arrive on scene before the three of them enter the home together. Upon opening the Martin's front door, he sees the same bloodied body that Michael Anderson had reported seeing earlier. Did he appear to be alive to you? He did make some sounds, but I don't think he was actually alive. Okay. Um, but you heard sounds? Yes, sir. Okay. Now, you said you were inside the residence, and the information you had, you did not know if the perpetrator was inside the residence at that time? No, we had no idea. Okay. Um, what, what is the procedure for you um, as a, a law officer entering a house in those circumstances? Well, the first thing that needs to be done is we need to check to make sure there's nobody that's going to cause harm to us while we're searching the house or looking, taking care of victims. Okay. So our main priority is to secure the inside of it, and once we know it's secure, then we can bring the medical personnel in to take care of anything that needs to get taken care of. Okay. So, so even if you were, were there and you, you heard sounds coming from Mr. Anderson, um, you would have to wait to render aid or have aid rendered to him until the house was cleared? Yes, sir. And it's probably the hardest thing to do as an officer. The Martin's bright and massive five-bedroom, three-bathroom home in Corona's highly sought-after south side fell dark with tragedy. The body that lay at the end of the main entryway near the rear patio door was so covered in dark blood that Michael Anderson, upon first entering, assumed it was his African-American uncle, Michael. Tragically, he didn't even realize that the body he'd actually found was that of his father, Ricky Anderson. The 58-year-old was laying in a pool of his own blood where the wooden floor met the living room carpet, his head gently resting upon what appeared to be a medium-sized dog bed directly adjacent to the rear sliding glass door. Next to his body on the floor lay an unopened Modelo brand beer bottle and an overturned kitchen chair. As police quickly worked to systematically clear the 2,600 square foot home, they noted early on that Ricky Anderson, though gravely wounded, his skull appearing to have been repeatedly smashed in with some type of blunt object, was still making noises there on the Martin's wooden floor. As officers progressed further into the Martin home, Looking right, directly into the open kitchen area, they saw another body. Right over here, in this area here, I saw another person up against the kitchen cabinets, which are there, and the um, kind of facing north, the same way this victim, or first victim was, head north, feet south. Uh, if we can zoom in on this. 
Um, just behind the table there, can you see um, the body of a man just behind the, the kitchen table there? Yes, sir. Okay. And that's the, uh, the second person, the second man you saw inside the home when you arrived? Yes, sir. Okay. And when you saw him, uh, were there any clues as to who he might be or what he was doing there? He had some type of a uniform shirt on, and he was purple with some kind of white striping on it. Looked like something you'd see on a car dealership worker or something like that. So it looked like a uniform, and he had grit or tan khaki pants on, which also looked similar to a uniform. Okay. On the top of the table that we're looking at here in the picture. Yep. Uh, right in this area here, there was a clipboard that had uh, ADT security paperwork on top of it. I didn't stare at it for long, but I glanced because I was concerned with the safety, so I needed to move quickly in the house. The second body discovered in the Martin's kitchen, laying on the floor in a pool of blood in front of the pantry door, belonged to 62-year-old Defender Securities installation technician, Barry Swanson. He had been called out to the Martin home to fill an emergency work order after Brandon Martin had been involuntarily committed two days prior. He was there to install a new ADT security and keyless entry system. Sergeant Gamash, while moving through the kitchen, noticed something alarming across the lower level on the living room floor. When I saw Mr. Swanson, I looked to my left and in the middle of the living room area, I saw blood drag marks on the carpeting, which made their way towards a second door, which is a pedestrian door into the garage. The trail of blood in the living room started at the leather recliner chair where Michael Martin spent most of his days sitting went all the way across the living room, down a carpeted hallway, through the door and out to the garage. The dark red stains appeared in thin, long streaks, with large pools collecting every few feet, as if someone had dragged a body that was still bleeding profusely out to the garage, stopping to rest every so often along the way. You see that photograph there? Yes, sir. Okay. Does that appear to be um, the continuation of the blood trail from the living room into the hallway leading to the garage? Yes. Okay. Um, if we look at that um, photograph, um, at the end, at the top of the photograph, there appears to be um, a door. Correct. Um, is that the door that led into the pedestrian, into the um, garage? Yes, sir. And then when you went inside the garage, um, what did you see? I saw another individual on the floor with blood around his head. Okay. And you see that photograph there? Yes, sir. Um, does that appear to be um, uh, the man that you found in the garage uh, when you arrived? Yes. Um, and that, that person um, was later known to you to be uh, Mr. Michael Martin? Correct. After police cleared the entire Martin family home, they radioed for an emergency medical transport as 58-year-old Rick Anderson was somehow still barely clinging to life. He was rushed to a nearby hospital where he remained in a coma for the next 48 hours before finally passing away from his injuries. All three of the victims had been viciously beaten to death, the bulk majority of their injuries occurring by blunt force trauma to the side and back of their heads. Though there was no sign of Brandon Martin anywhere, the clues remaining inside of the Martin family home were abundant. First, there was no sign of forced entry, leading police to believe early on that the perpetrator was likely someone familiar to the home and the family, as whoever it was likely walked right in through the front door 
while Michael Martin and Rick Anderson were patiently waiting for Barry Swanson to install the family's new robust security system. Second, the injuries sustained by all three men were indicative of some type of repeated medium-velocity impact. They were not killed by any type of gun or sharp-bladed instrument. The attack was targeted and very personal. And there are different uh, sizes of bloodstains, is that correct? Yes. And without getting too in-depth in it, uh, can you just give us a brief explanation as to why that might be important for somebody down the road? Basically, the higher energy that goes into the bloodshedding event, the smaller the droplets are going to be. So an example I would give would be a gunshot. If you see a mist on the wall, it looks like a mist, that means that that was created by extremely high energy. And these are roughly a medium energy event, and then a big round drip, for example, on the floor would be considered a low energy event. And the higher the energy, the smaller the drops are gonna typically be. So if somebody unfortunately is shot um, and a bullet passes through their body, there could be what you'd see some sort of mist uh, indicating that there was high velocity uh, from the bullet, is that correct? Yes, it's a shooting is very apparent as opposed to a drip or say a, a bloody nose. Right, so if somebody uh, hits another person in the nose and they get a bloody nose and it starts dripping on the ground, that would be considered low velocity? Very low energy, yes. It's right. not moving fast at all. Showing you people's 86. See this photograph? Yes. And do you see, what, what types of blood stain uh, do you see in this photograph? This appears to me to be caused by a medium event. And why do you say that? Because of the size of it. It's not a mist and it's not a big drop. You can see it's about one, two, three millimeters long. It's probably about one to two millimeters wide, which to me indicates not a drip, but not a mist. Rick Anderson, the youngest of the three men killed, was likely attacked first. As an able-bodied middle-aged man, he possessed zero defensive injuries. He was attacked with such brute force and efficiency that he didn't even have a chance to raise a hand or arm to deflect any of the blows to his head. He suffered tremendous bruising, hemorrhaging, and lacerations to his left forehead, neck, eyes, and cheek, in addition to the left side and back left of his scalp. But the extent of his internal injuries were telling. Someone had repeatedly beat him about the neck and face with a blunt force object with such force that they shattered nearly every major structure of his skull. This is a photograph of the hyoid bone. Um, it's, as you can see, it's a horseshoe-shaped bone. It's located um, between the chin and the thyroid cartilage, or um, where the adipodopa would be, right here. And in this photograph, there is a fracture here on the left side. This is a photograph of the skull after the scalp has been reflected or, or peeled off of it. So this, uh, the face would be over on this side and the back of the head is over on this side. This is the left side of the head. Um, the skull, again, the scalp has been reflected uh, forward and backward, and you can see the hemorrhage on the underside of the scalp, um, as well as uh, multiple um, linear fractures involving the frontal 
bone, um, temporal bone, parietal bone, and um, occipital bone, and the very back of the head. Okay. How many fractures are we looking at there? It's hard to tell. There's a lot of smaller fractures down here, um, um, showing again numerous fractures of all the bones of the skull. Okay. It appears that the area of impact is approximately here, and then there's what we call radiating linear fractures um, that extend outward from the impact. Okay. Fragmented pieces of bone that came apart during the um, removal of the top of the skull. Um, and um, those fragments, um, that's uncommon in, in autopsies when you're just removing the brain. Correct. So the indication of the uh, multiple f um, fragments show that um, the skull was hit with such force that those fractures made the, the head kind of, or the skull just kind of crack into different pieces. Correct. Okay. And is that close up of the uh, fragments of the skull um, that broke off when the, the autopsy was performed? Yes. According to later blood spatter analysis, Rick Anderson was likely struck first from behind and then repeatedly struck many times to the head after falling forward to the floor. Defender Securities technician Barry Swanson suffered similarly debilitating injuries from his attack. In addition to several defensive injuries to his palm and hand, Barry Swanson's entire skull showed multiple deep fractures with several pieces breaking entirely free underneath his scalp. The repeated blows were dealt with such precision and force that Barry Swanson likely raised his hand in some type of defensive gesture, perhaps to intervene in the attack on Rick Anderson before he too was quickly dispatched. In front of his body on the wall were several blood smears where he reached up in one last ditch effort to continue defending himself during the attack. Though he tried desperately to stop whoever had come into the home swinging, Barry Swanson was pronounced dead on the scene. But perhaps the most surprising of the brutal killings was that of Michael Martin. His health had so rapidly deteriorated in the six months leading up to his murder that he was unable to walk, and his muscle tissue had deteriorated so drastically throughout his entire body that he was unable to lift his own arms above shoulder height without support. Yet his injuries, like Rick Anderson and Barry Swanson's, were coldly efficient and devastatingly destructive. This is a photograph of the left side of Mr. Martin's head, and there is a, a laceration on the uh, temporal uh, parietal area of the scalp. And so again, the scalp has been shaved around the injury so you can visualize it better. And this is an um, irregular Y-shaped laceration with some um, abrasion surrounding it um, involving the temporal and uh, parietal scalp on the left side. This is a photograph of the left side of Mr. Martin's skull after the scalp has been um, reflected forward over the face and backwards um, over the back of the skull. And you can see um, multiple depressed skull fractures um, in the area beneath the laceration of the left temporal and parietal skull. You see 45? Yes. Um, does that appear to show um, 
in exclusive detail the multiple fractures to Mr. Martin's skull? Yes. Okay. Um, and um, are those, uh, is the skull actually coming away, breaking off in, in those areas? It appears some of the fragments are, um, yes, coming apart from the skull. Um, does that better reflect um, the fragmentation of the skull, um, pieces of skull breaking away? Yes. Okay. Now, in terms of um, your review of the photographs of Mr. Michael Martin, um, the injuries that he had all appear to be to the left side of his head uh, in the left temporal area? Yes. Okay. Um, he had no defensive injuries to him? No. Nothing to the arms or the elbows? No. Um, in terms of um, your expert opinion in terms of a cause of death, were you able to determine a cause of death for Mr. Michael Martin from your independent review? Yes. And what was that? Multiple blunt force injuries of head. Rick Anderson, Barry Swanson, and Michael Martin had all suffered the majority of their fatal injuries to the left side of their face and head. The perpetrator swinging whatever object was used with enough force that he nearly caved in each of their skulls. Having caused so much repeated damage to the left side of each victim's face and skull, their killer was very likely right-handed. But was Brandon Martin, the once-beloved son and future Major League Baseball star, really capable of murder? And why, if he were so angry at his father, would he also kill his Uncle Rick and visiting security installation tech Barry Swanson? Police didn't have to look very far to find the likely murder weapon. Uh, the bat was leaning against the wall behind the door leading from like a, a hallway area to the garage. Um, it had dents in it and it had what appeared to be blood on it. Okay. Um, and when you uh, collected that, um, how did you store that bat? Uh, I recall putting it in a box to suspend it from both ends so that the where we saw the majority of what we believed to be blood and damage wasn't touching the packaging. Okay. And um, did you at some point take that bat to the Department of Justice? I did. Leaning up against the wall behind the door, leading from the bloodied hallway out into the garage, was a custom Major League Edition Louisville Slugger baseball bat. The black wooden bat was custom made and had the likely killer's name etched into it, sunken in bright white bold lettering. The bat belonged to none other than Corona's top defensive prospect in the 2011 Major League Baseball draft, the aggressive shortstop and confident right-hander Brandon Willie Martin. Besides the obvious that Brandon Martin was the one likely responsible for the murders, there were other clues throughout the Martin family home that would quickly lead police directly to their prime suspect. Starting with the ADT work order that was left on the kitchen counter, near where installation technician Barry Swanson's body was discovered. The order included a call-in telephone number. Sergeant Gamash called ADT who reported that the order was actually being filled by one of their subcontractors, Defender Incorporated. Sergeant Gamash then left a detailed message with the Defender Inc. manager. 
That message was ultimately relayed back to Barry Swanson's own son-in-law, Michael Harvey, who was also employed by Defender Inc. at the time. He was quick to get back in touch with Sergeant Gamache. Um, I was the one that actually contacted him. I got his contact information from Barry's manager um, that they were uh, trying to locate uh, or that he was missing. It was very unclear what was going on at the time. Okay. When was the first time you realized that there was some issue with your father-in-law, Barry? It was later in that evening. Approximately what time? Between 6 and 8 p.m. Uh, when you received information about that, what did you do? Um, me personally, we, we attempted to contact Barry. And how did you try to contact him? Uh, by phone call and through text. Uh, didn't answer any of your phone calls? No. Didn't answer any of your text messages? No. Is that when you called uh, Sergeant Gamash, or was it before that? Uh, yeah, my we had gotten his phone number from the manager, uh, the ADT manager, and then I contacted the detective to let him know who I was. Um, at that point, I believe we were told to come down to the Corona Police Department. And is that when you found out what had happened to Barry? Yes. Um, to your knowledge, uh, had Barry ever worked at that residence before? No. Um, and did the police ask you for identifying information as, as to uh, Barry's truck? Um, later that night, I had spoken um, to my brother-in-law who sent me a text message um, of the back of his truck with the stickers and the license plate. Uh, and I forwarded that on to the detectives. After learning Barry Swanson's full identity from his son-in-law, Corona Police immediately put out a felony stop warning on Barry Swanson's white 2012 Ford Raptor truck. The truck that was nowhere to be found anywhere near the Martin residence. It was missing, along with all three victims' wallets and cell phones. None of the jewelry, electronics, or other valuables in the home were stolen, but there was something else missing from the Martin family home, Brandon's beloved new dog. After briefing officers arriving at the morning shift on September 18th, the very day after the gruesome murders, Corona police officer Shannon Velasco spotted the unique pickup truck at just after 9.40 in the morning. What was relayed to us was the night before, which would have been on September 17th, a homicide occurred in our city uh, where a vehicle was stolen from one of the victims. And they gave us a description, which I remember was a, a white Ford Raptor that had a, a mesh tailgate. And I remember that because I had to ask what a Raptor was. Um, and it also had stickers on it. Okay. Now, at some point, did you see that Raptor during your shift? Yes. I'm going to show you what's been marked as People's 165. Do you see that photograph? Yes. Uh, do you see the truck in that photograph? Yes. Does it look familiar? Yes. And is that the truck that you saw during your shift? Yes. As Officer Velasco turns around and begins following the white Raptor pickup truck, another Corona police officer spots the truck and begins passively pursuing it. Both officers first radio in the sighting near a cul-de-sac in the area of South Lincoln Avenue and West Foothill Parkway, just 1.3 miles from Michael and Melody Martin's home at 1207 Winthrop Drive. By this time, 
police also had an active description of what Brandon Martin was likely wearing, pulled from a series of still images and video that were captured on the Riverside Transit Agency bus that he took to the stop nearest his parents' home on the day of the murders. Officer Velasco moved into position to get a better look at the driver of the truck. I believe I was more or less behind it um, because what I remember is I didn't initially follow him, I'm sorry, the the vehicle into the cul-de-sac. And when the vehicle had rounded the cul-de-sac, I was able to see the driver of the vehicle uh, because the window was rolled halfway down. Okay. And when you saw the driver of the vehicle, what did that driver look like? I saw that it was an African-American male adult. Um, He looked to be young, I would say in his early 20s. Um, And I do remember he was wearing a baseball cap that was green and yellow in color. Uh, When, and did the vehicle, did the Raptor in fact pass you as, uh, as you saw the driver? Yes. Okay. And then as the, after the Raptor passed you, did you make a, a U-turn? Um, I didn't make a U-turn. I, I went into the cul-de-sac as well. Um, but, I, but I just remember that I, I had waited because I, I didn't know what he was going to do. And there was such a small amount of space in that street. Okay. But at some point, did the Raptor stop? Yes. And when it stopped, where was your vehicle positioned? I believe my vehicle was positioned behind him. Uh, directly behind it or or off to one of the sides? Probably more off to the side. That's what we're trained to do. Okay. On the driver's side or passenger side of his Dri- vehicle? Driver's side. Uh, when his vehicle stopped, uh, did, your ve- did you stop your vehicle? Yes. After identifying that the driver did in fact match the description of Brandon Martin provided during the morning shift change briefing, Officers Velasco and Bejinas continue passively pursuing the vehicle. After running the plates through their system, dispatch confirms that the truck they are now following is in fact Barry Swanson's stolen 2012 Ford Raptor. But neither officer facilitates a traffic stop because of the high-risk nature of the felony stop warning placed on the vehicle. Because the truck was wanted in connection to three homicides from the night before, Officers Velasco and Bejinas wait for one additional marked patrol car to join in on the pursuit before attempting to stop the vehicle. While waiting for another officer to arrive in the area, the truck briefly pulls over and stops. It appears that the driver recognizes that he's being followed. But as Officer Velasco initiates her overhead lights in response, the truck starts moving again, now heading south towards a residential community until it comes to another dead-end cul-de-sac. Officer Velasco gets out of her patrol car and stands behind her open driver's side door, her service weapon drawn, while Brandon Martin sits in the truck in front of them. Her and Officer Vahinas wait for between 5 and 10 minutes for additional backup units to respond, but having come to their unavoidable confrontation, they yell at Brandon Martin to put his hands out the window, both aloud and using the patrol car's PA system. At this point in the pursuit, they still didn't know how many people were in the truck or if the driver, now wanted for a triple murder, was armed. After a few additional minutes of waiting, another marked patrol unit arrives on scene and Brandon Martin is off to the races. Yes, I remember it at the rate of speed. Um, That was concerning for me given we're in a residential community, given the hour. um, I'm familiar with that area that there's a people that go out, uh, pedestrians if you will, who walk, they're 
dogs who take their kids for walks. Um, also, we're in close proximity to an elementary school. Martin continues driving northeast through a small Corona residential community, at one point appearing to pull over and attempt a U-turn. As he rapidly changes direction, now heading directly towards a nearby park and elementary school, Officer Velasco receives authorization to attempt a pit maneuver to force the Ford Raptor to a stop. As Martin continues north, she attempts three separate pit maneuvers before the Ford Raptor is finally brought to a screeching halt. On the last attempt, another police officer moved in and rammed the truck from the side, effectively trapping Brandon Martin in the middle of the road. Before police could exit their own vehicles and initiate an arrest, Brandon Martin fled the scene on foot. When he opened his door and ran off, his small white dog jumped out of the truck and onto the pavement. It cowered underneath the vehicle in fear as police surrounded it. Officers on scene followed Brandon Martin through several backyards and watched him enter a home at 858 Derby Street, a property that sat just over half a mile from Michael and Melody Martin's Winthrop Drive home. Police positioned SWAT team resources in the immediate vicinity as they surrounded and prepared to enter the home. Yes, so as we're here, we had our, uh, our SWAT vehicle, our ARVs parked right here. Okay, you're pointing to the uh, front driveway. driveway. Yes. Okay, yeah, we were set up here. And while we were discussing whether, how we were gonna either enter the house, we were trying to make phone calls into the house to see, number one, anybody's home, uh, there's no hostages being taken. So a lot of things are in play at this point because our rear perimeter person tells us that there's somebody, that he went inside the house. Why don't you just go and knock on the door? At, at that point, knocking on the door can, can probably worsen the situation as far as uh, yeah, now it, it kind of, it's now more of an, a fight or flight kind of situation, if that makes sense, where if I'm knocking on the door, this guy knows we're there and, and he could probably turn into a different person at that point. Or possibly hurt somebody. All right. Um, so, did you did you have any way to confirm whether he was inside the house? Yes. How? So, as we were discussing what our our plan was going to be uh, to enter the house, we actually saw him standing right here. Okay. So you're pointing to the window above the small garage. Correct. Right here. All right. Uh, and what was he doing? He was just standing there. Um, I identified him by his hat. Okay. The yellow and green hat? Yellow and green hat, correct. All right. So that was the same. You knew that was the same suspect that was in the Ford Raptor? Yes. All right. And did you call out to him, make any commands, talk to him? At that point, we didn't yet. Okay. We, we, but we were able to determine he was in the house. The woman who owned the home that Brandon Martin barged into during the chase was in the shower at the time and initially had no idea of the chaos ensuing around her. After realizing that he had been spotted, Brandon Martin retreated to a back bedroom where he broke open the window and jumped down into the backyard. Corona canine officer Jeffrey Bennett spotted Martin's exodus from the home and a team of three other officers fell in behind him as they moved around the side of the house towards the backyard. As they neared the fence, they could see Brandon Martin laying on his back motionless in the grass. He was on the ground laying down with his back towards us, motionless. Okay. And did you call out to the suspect? Uh, at that point, our canine officer did. Okay. Um, and who's your canine officer? It's a, it was Corporal Bennett at the time. All right. And what is Corporal Bennett uh, saying to the subject? 
Um, he's basically asking for compliance. If, you know, we don't know if he's in contact. We don't know what happened. So we're asking him to show us his hands. Okay. And it, um, are you getting any answer back from the subject? No. Uh, is the subject showing hands? No. And as an officer in this particular situation, why do you care uh, if the subject is on their stomach uh, that you want to see their hands? At this point, he has not been searched. It's, it's obvious that he's fleeing, and I, we had we were able to identify, or somebody was able to identify that that was a person, you know, wanted in, the, in connection with the homicide. Okay. And as you, as an officer, why does that matter? Um, because he could have been armed. He could have been armed and waiting for us to approach him and, and maybe injured a couple of officers. Corporal Jeffrey Bennett recalls the exact moment he deployed canine Dex after Brandon Martin refused to show his hands. Dex charged, initially biting Martin's right shin. The moment his teeth sank into Martin's leg, he jumped to his feet in a scramble. He immediately sprung up to his feet. Okay. And what did he do at that point? He began fleeing backwards through the backyard. And as he was punching Dex multiple times with fists uh, on his head and face. Uh, you said that the suspect was going backwards, is that correct? Correct. And at the same time, punching Dex uh, in the nose and face? Correct. Uh, what was Dex doing? Was he just latched on or was he biting, like opening and closing his mouth on biting different areas? At that point, he was holding the bite and taking that punches. Okay. Um, did, did that change? That did change. Uh, explain that. As he was being punched in the head, at one point, Brandon bent down and grabbed the dog in a bear hug, which he had the whole dog's body. His face would be facing the dog's tail now with his back towards his face and, and picked him up and just body slammed his whole weight onto the dog, smashing onto the concrete. What part of the dog hit first? Would have been his chest area. Chest area, okay. Um, did Dex respond in any way? He did, he, uh, he yelled out or, or scream, uh, I wanna say scream, but I don't know if dogs scream, but he, he yelped out in, in pain. Okay. Uh, when you saw that, how did you respond? I responded thinking, I don't know, uh, he, the suspect bounced back up on his feet now. He was back up on his feet. Dex was now biting one of his inner thigh areas. He was latched on to the inner thigh. And not knowing what kind of damage the punches were doing to the dog or how much more the dog can handle, um, I used my uh, rapid containment baton and two-handed strike uh, struck him on his right shoulder collarbone area. Okay. So going back, you said that this suspect um, basically used his body weight and slammed Dex down uh, to the cement. Is that correct? Correct. Deciding not to risk allowing Brandon Martin to make another daring escape, police charged him after he began repeatedly striking canine Dex in the nose and on the head before he slammed the dog down onto the concrete barbecue patio. Brandon Martin fought with everything he had until the handcuffs were finally locked into place around both of his wrists. He struggled till the very end. So yes, he was, he was kicking and struggling on the ground the entire time. And uh, tell us about how the handcuffs were able to be applied to him. I can't be 100%. At, at some point, the officers were able to uh, get his hands from under his body and handcuff him. 
Okay. But okay, so it wasn't you. It was somebody else that did it. That's correct. It was not me. Okay. What were you doing during the time that he was being cuffed? My job is to make sure the officers are safe and that the dog's doing what he's supposed to do. And once the handcuffs cuffs were placed on him, the dog's removed immediately. Okay. So, um, so when he, before he's handcuffed, it's the dog's still doing whatever the dog does to try to contain the suspect. That is correct. He'll stay on whatever body part he's on until the handcuffs come on. Okay. And then once the handcuffs went on, what did you do to uh, now take Dex away? I physically removed the dog from, from Brandon. Okay. And, and Dex complied? Yes, he did. Now that authorities had Brandon Martin in custody, they could begin piecing together his movements from the day before, when his father Michael Martin, his uncle Rick Anderson, and Defender Security's installation technician Barry Swanson were all murdered in cold blood. Detective Gail Godfrey interviewed Martin at the Riverside County Jail in a tiny attorney-client meeting booth. He was still showing the physical signs of his vehicular and foot pursuit from a few days before when he spoke to Detective Godfrey through the jail's thick protective glass barrier on September 22, 2015. His demeanor was, he was eager that I was there. And the only thing that I would say, the, the conversation was fluid and he seemed a little bit tired, but other than that, he seemed responsive. Um, uh, when you say responsive, um, he responded in the in an accurate way to your questions. Correct. The content was there. Okay. Um, and so, I think a moment ago you said the conversation was fluid in terms of you would ask him a question, he would answer, and then you would follow up with another question, and he would answer. Correct. Um, and the reply seemed to be um, oriented to the question. Yes. Okay. Um, and you said um, he seemed a bit tired. Yes. Um, uh, did he tell you that um, he was taking some pain medication for um, injury to his shoulder? Yes. And that interview you had with him was recorded? Yes, it was. Okay. And Audio recorded. Audio recorded. Um, and again, you mentioned this was in the, the attorney um, client booth. Correct. So just, just so people have a, an understanding, if you go to the Riverside County Jail as an attorney to meet with um, a client, you're um, shown to a room that has plexiglass down the middle of the room and seats on either side of the plexiglass. And plexiglass in front. Plexiglass in front. Um, and so there's no tangible interaction between the client and the attorney. Correct. Due to the poor acoustics from the jail's meeting booth, the audio recording from the interview was barely audible. However, during questioning, Brandon Martin denied having anything at all to do with the grisly crime scene discovered in his parents' home late in the afternoon on September 17th. But Detective Godfrey already had a wealth of information at her disposal to refute his repeated claims that he was not the killer. Martin first claimed that he arrived at the family home sometime before noon and that upon entering the front door, discovered the grisly crime scene, claiming that the murders had already taken place. That he was so afraid police would consider him the prime suspect that he then casually entered the home, grabbed a few of his belongings, went out to the garage to get himself a can of Dr. Pepper soda, and then emptied each man's pockets, taking with him their wallets and cell phones. 
He also admitted to taking a pack of cigarettes and a knife from Barry Swanson's pocket, in addition to his truck keys. He didn't have access to a vehicle of his own at the time, so he claims that he stole Barry Swanson's truck because he feared his mother would return home later that evening, believing he was the killer if he stayed behind at the crime scene. But Detective Gottfried already knew that Brandon Martin's timeline and recollection of events was entirely fabricated. Police had already pieced together a timeline of Brandon Martin's travel back to his family home against his parents' wishes, which had been communicated to him by ETS staff before he was released and sent packing with a Riverside Transit Authority bus pass and directions to the nearest station. But instead of taking the bus elsewhere to another family member or friend's house, Brandon Martin was captured on video taking an RTA bus all the way to the stop nearest his family's home. The video captured him getting off the bus at 3.02 p.m. on the 500 block of East Grand, just 2.7 miles from his parents' house. Detectives had already walked the route themselves on foot and had paced the walk from the bus stop to the Martin residence as taking anywhere from 51 to 55 minutes, which would have placed him at their home at or just after 4 p.m. Police also knew Brandon hadn't been at the family home any earlier in the day because Michael Martin had an appointment that afternoon with his occupational therapist, Desiree Seagraves. According to her visitation report, she noted leaving the Martin residence at approximately 3.50 p.m., missing the brutal attack by an estimated 15 or 20 minutes. Before departing, she left a California Visiting Nurses Association booklet on Michael Martin's side table right next to his leather recliner. That booklet was covered in blood spatter from the attack, so police knew that it occurred after she left, at or shortly after 4 p.m. Police also knew that everyone was still alive inside the home at that time, because Rick Anderson had made a phone call to his dentist at 4 p.m. He also briefly contacted his son Michael at 4.10. But Barry Swanson, the man police could only identify by his work uniform and the ADT work order left on the kitchen counter, had also made a call shortly after 4.10 p.m. to the ADT Security System Activation Hotline. Detectives had already obtained from ADT an actual recording of that phone call, which appeared to have captured Barry Swanson's last moments alive before he likely attempted to intervene in the vicious attack unfolding in the Martin family home right in front of him. After briefly connecting with an ADT rep on the phone, Barry Swanson gives his full name and employee ID number. He also notes the Martin family address and work order number before something abruptly takes him away from the phone at approximately 4.12 p.m. The sounds, though difficult to make out, 
are unmistakably tragic as three grown men are caught off guard and systematically beaten to death with a baseball bat by one of Southern California's top former Major League Draft prospects. Martin was spotted on one of the city of Corona's red light intersection cameras at 4.44 p.m., driving Barry Swanson's white 2012 Ford Raptor. Detectives knew that he was in the home at the time of the murders and that he was the killer. Brandon Martin did admit during questioning to driving down the road after stealing Barry Swanson's truck to go to the Carl's Jr. fast food restaurant to grab himself some dinner after he allegedly stumbled into the grisly crime scene at his family home. He then claims that he noticed Barry's truck was nearly out of fuel, so he took one of the credit cards from Barry's wallet and attempted to fill the gas tank at a nearby gas station. But that card was declined, so Brandon said he planned to stay the night in the area and then return to the family home the following morning to take his Uncle Rick's truck instead. He admitted to throwing out all three of the men's cell phones while at the gas station before eventually disposing of their wallets by randomly throwing them in people's backyards around the neighborhood. When confronted with the complete breakdown of his timeline and recollection of events and the fact that police actually already possessed a copy of the ADT phone call which captured the horrific sounds of the attack, Brandon Martin changed his story. He would later claim that he did arrive at the house sometime later around 4 p.m., but that he saw his Uncle Rick standing out back of the home smoking a cigarette. When asked why he walked around to the back of the house without first knocking on or entering through the front door, Brandon Martin claimed that he spotted his uncle and wanted to see what he was doing. Though he initially claimed to have briefly spoken to his Uncle Rick out back, he would later change his story yet again, claiming that after seeing his uncle at the rear of the home, the two didn't have any interaction or communication with one another because Brandon, quote, walked back around the front of the house, laid down and took a nap in the grass for like an hour. He then explained that the murders must have taken place during his nap in the front lawn because everyone was already dead by the time he finally entered the home through the front door. 
Brandon Martin's story was entirely nonsensical, just like much of his behavior was in the weeks and months leading up to the gruesome murders. When Detective Godfrey confronted Brandon with the information about the bloodied baseball bat they had taken into evidence, he then added something else to his story. He claimed that after discovering the horrific crime scene inside the home, the one that he allegedly had nothing to do with, he retrieved his custom baseball bat from his upstairs bedroom. He was allegedly going to use it to poke at the three dead men, but after picking up the bat, he noticed that it was covered in blood. He then claims that he swung the bat randomly at several objects upstairs, including a leather sofa, before setting it back down and leaving the scene. He admitted to Detective Gottfried that he, quote, washed my hands off while leaving. Strangely, he also claimed to know that some of the blood on the bat belonged to his father, and that he, quote, touched him a little bit with it, claiming that he used the bat to poke and prod at his father's bloodied and caved-in skull while out in the garage retrieving a can of Dr. Pepper from the garage refrigerator. He said he did it to see if his father was still alive. When asked why he took his dog Slauson with him before leaving the home, he simply replied, because I didn't want to be lonely. Before wrapping up the interview, Brandon Martin asked Detective Godfried if he was still being charged with the murders. When she told him he was, he asked her aloud, quote, but where's the proof? Uh, item ND44 was pieces of the skull from Michael Martin with what appeared to be black paint transfer okay. on them. And are those the pieces of the skull that you packaged in that package we just saw and later transferred to the Department of Justice? Yes, sir. Thank you. No further questions, Ron. November 4, 2020, a jury of Brandon Martin's peers found him guilty of three counts of first-degree intentional murder. He was also convicted of evading arrest, vehicular theft, obstructing a peace officer, and injuring a police canine. During the penalty phase of the trial, Brandon Martin's defense team aggressively fought to demonstrate that their client was severely mentally ill and that all of the warning signs were there since his initial diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia in 2013. But one of the most controversial questions plaguing the entire case was why didn't Brandon Martin's family disclose his apparently rapidly deteriorating mental health to the various counselors and therapists that he visited with between 2013 and 2015? Most of Brandon's close friends and extended family knew nothing of his alleged paranoid schizophrenia diagnosis and instead assumed that his strange and at times aggressive and violent behavior was instead due to his increasing drug use. It was a question that prosecuting attorneys badgered Melody Martin on over and over again as they fought to have Brandon put to death. The prosecution alluded to the idea that Melody Martin was either protecting her son's potential future in professional baseball by actively covering up his diagnosis, or that she was making up his entire history of mental illness simply to spare his life 
so that he would receive a sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole, instead of being sentenced to death. Now, in fact, Brandon didn't talk to himself very often, did he? Every day. Every day? Every day. Okay. Uh, did you find that to be unusual? Yes, that's why he went to see three psychologists, see so, three, three psychologists, counseling, drug testing, blood work. Okay. Absolutely. All right, so you were very concerned about it, correct? You're right, yes, sir. I was very concerned. And you would have told all those psychologists or psychiatrists about um, Brandon talking to himself that that was true, correct? No. You would not have told them? No. I, that, you, you must understand the reason that we reached out to him to who? was Dr. Solomon that we're talking about, the doctor. Um, the reason I reached out to him was we wanted a combination of a psychiatrist and medication and a psychologist, a psychologist for talk therapy so that Brandon could open up to somebody that the combination of those two things Okay, Ms. Martin, I was I'm going to stop you right there. Uh-huh. So you didn't think that a psychologist it would be relevant, maybe even important information that Brandon talked to himself every single day and heard voices every single day. He never asked me those questions. So no, I, I, I didn't that wasn't the purpose of his visits. Okay, and you didn't think it might be, oh, so Dr. Solomon, uh, one thing I might tell you is, uh, by the way, my son is talking to himself and hearing voices every day. Do you think that might be important to know? If indeed that was true. Again, I did not take my son to see a psychologist for a diagnosis. No, I, on his mental illness. Martin, the question is, you don't think that would have been important for Dr. Solomon to know, yes or no? Objection, that's already moved. Can, can you repeat the question again? I'm sorry. Yes, do you think the information about Brandon talking to himself or hearing voices every single day, if that was in fact true, would be important information for Dr. Solomon, yes or no? I think that information would be important for Dr. Solomon to know by Brandon telling him. But not by you, correct? Not necessarily, no. Okay. The same jury that convicted Brandon Martin of the murders of his father, Michael, his uncle, Rick, and Defender Inc. installation tech, Barry Swanson, ultimately recommended that he be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. During the penalty phase of his trial, they listened to several family members of the deceased give powerful victim impact statements explaining the tragic and lasting effects the senseless murders had on them and their families, beginning with the family of Barry Swanson. Um, I was his only girl, and the only girl of the entire family. So if you, I was his princess, that's what he always called me. He was an amazing friend and father. Everyone who met him knew him, and he was a helpful person. He would do anything for anyone. Um, I don't know that I have enough time to really explain how amazing he was. He was a best friend and an amazing dad. I don't have my person anymore. My dad was the glue that held our family together. This is torn apart 
the relationships with my brothers and myself, with all of our family. There's no way to heal and move on from something like this. And my dad was the one that kept us together. He wasn't just a dad to me. He was, you know, a mentor, somebody that I talked to constantly. He was, uh, he lived with my wife and I and my kids. We had a, a property where he lived in the back house and, you know, we spent a lot of time together. My son lost his poppy. My son unfortunately inherited his hairline and lost his hair this last year. And um, my son was introduced to motorcycles through my father and my myself. Um, my dad helped him rebuild his first dirt bike, took him for rides on his first Harley ride. And my son was devastated. And my daughter will never have a grandfather. Not only was Barry Swanson a proud father, mentor, and leader to his family, he was a proud Vietnam veteran. As a helicopter door gunner and crew chief, he lived through five different chopper crashes during the Vietnam War, each time demonstrating courage and quick thinking under fire by protecting his crew. His bravery saved many lives over the years, but in the end, when he tried to intervene in the savage killings of Rick Anderson and Michael Martin, he too went down in the fight. Before putting forth their recommendation for sentencing, the jury also heard from members of Rick Anderson's family. Always, always uh, be honest in what you do. Um, look out, look out for others, take care of uh, other people first. That was, uh, that was him and, and you could live a happy life doing that. Friend. When I say this, I mean, I've, I've remarried and I've been remarried for 35 years and I love my husband and I need, I mean, no disrespect to my husband whatsoever and he knows this, but I have to say that um, Rick is the best thing that ever happened to me because, it, as I said, he brought this foundation um, to me that this young 15-year-old girl from Missouri um, I didn't have a family. I, um, I would have aged out of the foster care system at 18. I had no parents to turn to. Um, he helped me find my voice. Um, it, it's been very, very hard. I miss him every, every day. I miss his voice. I was talking to him. We were, I was close with his, his family. Before concluding, the jury also heard directly from Melody Martin, wife to victim Michael Martin, and mother to Brandon, his killer. She pleaded with them to spare her son's life because she couldn't bear losing yet another family member in the tragedy. Michael and I shared a very special relationship. We had breakfast every morning together. I made him lunch on the days that he didn't have dialysis. We had dinner together every night. We talked about our day every day. We shared everything. We, we got each other. We, we got each other. And um, 
we were to be together for the rest of our lives and our vows we took very seriously. Um, I miss him terribly to, to share my days with. I've had so much loss, so much death. It's so profound. I do not want to lose another member of my family. It would be a dagger in my heart. Thank you, ma'am. Nothing for that. Several of the victim's surviving family members have filed a lawsuit against Riverside County and the city of Corona, alleging they were both negligent in failing to arrest Brandon Martin after he initially physically assaulted his father in the summer of 2014, and then failed to properly evaluate Brandon Martin's psychiatric well-being before releasing him early in the involuntary 72-hour hold on September 17, 2015. The suit also alleges that neither Defender Inc nor ADT Security Services appropriately notified police when Barry Swanson, Michael Martin, and Rick Anderson were attacked and killed mid-phone call during the security system installation. Judge Bernard Schwartz will return to the courtroom in January of 2021 when he will render his final sentence for Brandon Martin. <laughs> 